Mr. Lauderdale, how are you? I'm joking, but I'm going to say this. Who, who is this? You just woke me up out of a deep sleep. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. No, I'm t- totally joking. I'm doing great, and it's really wonderful to talk to you. And listen, I might joke around during our interview, so I just wanted to say that I might try to make you laugh. You're all right. I was about to mention that for the people who will be listening to this podcast. <laughs> all right. Congratulations on your brand new album, London Southerner. I must Thanks. say, super, super cool. Thanks. I loved it. Um, so you recorded this album here in London? Yes, yes. And, and Balam. And um, I wanted to call the album and I was touring with the ideas of calling it South London or London South, and one of my co-writers for two of the songs is John Oates, uh-huh. and John, you know, is in that group Hall and Oates. Of course. And um, so when I told him that, he said, oh, I've got it, why don't you call it London Southern? So I, I, I oh, I'm grateful to him for suggesting that, and so that title stuck. Um, so you worked with Nick Lowe's band, which you've been, as you stated in your statement, proper yeah. records, uh-huh. uh, that you've toured with him. That's right. Well, back in uh, 94, 94, 95, the years are blurring together, but, but it was around that time, and I got to uh, open up for him mm-hmm. a lot in the States. He was touring uh, a record of his called The Impossible. Yes. And um, uh, so that's where I met um, uh, and got to work with the drummer, uh, Robert Traherne, or yes. Bobby Irwin, mm-hmm. as we call him. And, and sadly, uh, Bobby passed away. Um, uh, but, and also the piano player, Neil Brockbank. Um, no, I'm sorry, Neil Brockbank was the, was the producer, but Geraint Watkins. And, and Neil uh, was Nick's sound engineer on that tour, so uh, he, he is an amazing producer. Uh, now, I'm really interested, because you spend so much time in Nashville and touring the U.S., when did you find time to come down to London and to record the album? Well, I just, um, I just set aside that time, you know, I had uh, a week here and a week there that I wasn't uh, working in the States and so uh, Neil uh, Brockbank just uh, arranged everything and uh, so thank goodness it all worked out and the, and the musicians were available and the studio was available so timing wise it, it worked out great. So it's similar to this changes everything it kind of came out of the blue? It did it did um, 
yourself get in the way said you're going back and forth and writing at nights and then during gigs was that yes. was that something a self-expression that don't let that, that was one of the uh, songs on the second night um, that I started in Liverpool mm-hmm Um, so don't let yourself get in a way. It's kind of a song. It's talking to you. Oh, you cannot do that. Oh, you cannot do this. However, right. you're kind of suggesting. Oh, don't let yourself get in a right. way. And oh, do... I see. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. It's kind of a a, um, a loving, friendly advice to someone mm-hmm. that you care about. Because you know we we all do that sometimes. At least I do. You know, I get in my own. So, how long did it take for this album to be recorded? Um, we, I guess, the time with when we were recording the basic tracks that probably took about five days. Um, yeah, probably that just for the basic tracks, and then came the overdubs. Mm. Um, I wasn't here. That was what I was about to ask you. Added woodwinds and things, so I wished I could have been here for that, but just time didn't permit it, and we had already recorded all. I I did come back um, again, and uh, there was, I think, Don't Let Yourself Get in the Way, for instance. I just, I had the, the, musically the structure of the song, the, uh, the title, and some of the lyrics, but some of the lyrics 
So, oh, but but and and answer your question. And then there were um, uh, you added some horns uh, um, to to a song, and then I put some horn. Neil was in the U.S. touring with Nick Lowe, and for some things we hadn't finished uh, overdub wise. That's really cool. Yeah. Only a week, an yeah. album done. Wow, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, but and then Neil had to mix it and everything, of yeah. course, and that took, took time. And, uh, of course. Yeah. Um. So this is your very first album overseas, I'm assuming. Yes. How exciting. Yeah. Oh, it really was. I was really very excited to do that, and um, and in some ways nervous because I really wanted to. I don't want to spend too, uh, too much time uh, talking about the album because I know you. We only have twenty to fifteen minutes. Okay. Um. So uh, the last questions for the sure. album is, how did the sound come together? Well, I um, I wanted to, and, and kind of what ended up happening was that with some of my influences being country and R and B and soul and rock. Um, that's kind of the, uh, stylistically, what was kind of coming out of me. And at the same time, I was real influenced by the Beatles mm -hmm. when I was six, when they first came out in the United States. Just, you know, they just had such a huge impact on, on everybody at that time. And so, in some ways, that influence, too, got mixed in there with all those because those styles of music influenced the Beatles as well mm -hmm. so it was kind of I was kind of adding I, I think that that um, music goes across the ocean and, and comes back and you know starting with from the British Isles the mm -hmm. folk uh, songs and um, fiddle and they, they made their way to America, and then that got synthesized and things, you know, things like bluegrass and old-timey music yes, and some of the gospel music, and then that mixed in with uh, influences in African music that, that was there in the U.S. 
Grand Parsons. I mean, it came from England, yes. And then Grand Parsons, so it's this kind of uh, bouncing back mm -hmm. and forth of, of musical styles from here to America and back and then back and forth. And uh, so that, that's, that was uh, just kind of what I brought over with me on that record was, was the influences with me with those styles, but then with the little touch of the Beatles influence on me. Going back, um, you grew up in North Carolina. Yes. Mm -hmm. When I think of North Carolina, I would think of bluegrass and Appalachian yes. music. Yes. So how... How was the radio like back there? Were they the Beatles? Were they? Was there any Stones or? Yes, it was very. It, it was at that time when I was growing up in the '60s and '70s. Radio, um, the mainstream hit radio, was uh, it, it was the Beatles and the Stones and British bands. And then people like Otis Redding and uh, some great soul music, Motown, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and British bands like Cream. They were a big influence. Eric Clapton was a big influence and hero. But mixed, and then all these American rock bands. And so it was just musically, it was great magical time of this mixture of things now separately there was country and bluegrass the country stations at that time were playing some bluegrass mm -hmm. but country there weren't as many country stations at that time as there are now and it hadn't really come into the mainstream and become such a large genre back then but um, then in the late 60s and early 70s there was kind of this um, groups like the birds yeah. kind of started doing country rock and Graham Parsons came out of that and the Grateful Dead um, were kind of doing some country things on a couple of records and so all of these styles kind of sometimes got kind of there, there were fusions of things going on. So it was just a really fertile time musically. So it was it was very diverse uh, musically. So how was Appalachian music was preserved, traditional music in a sense, how was it? How was that preserved? Were you... Well, it, it started becoming popular in the um, early 60s. There became uh, more more awareness of people like Bill Monroe and, mm -hmm. and Flat and Scruggs and the Stanley Brothers. And, and so young people started embracing that. And um, then there was a group called the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was 1972, it might have been 1971, they came out with this three-album set called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Mm -hmm. Festivals had been kind 
kind of growing. And so the festival scene, uh, bluegrass festivals, and there are still a lot of bluegrass festivals, and bluegrass has really grown a lot. And then there are, there are festivals like one in North Carolina called Merle yeah. Fest. And that is this huge festival, about 80,000 people come. And so there is a lot of bluegrass and acoustic music, but it's mixed in with other things. Um, uh, as well, a, a lot, mostly, I'd, I'd call it roots music, or mm-hmm. you, you could call it Americana music, too, you know, which is kind of, to me, that term means, um, it's like an umbrella term, meaning um, roots rock, country, traditional country, bluegrass, folk, soul, um, blues R&B, and, but kind of the rootsier element, not, not overproduced records, um, you know, or, or like with like electronic, you know, synthesizer dance type music. It's 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 more in the rootsy style, and, and uh, that's really uh, spreading. I think that that term, and, and uh, even over here, there's there's like a healthy audience and a, a bunch of great musicians doing that kind of music. I'm assuming there won't be a Jim Lauderdale or Nicki Minaj album. Um, I never know. <laughs> <laughs> I would be looking forward for that if it happened, honestly. You never know. Anything could happen in this musical world. <laughs> so, um, that's, uh, I asked my uh, previous person I was interviewing. Um, I told him what was the hip thing, the sound back then, like in the school playground. What was being shared about, like? At that in time, terms of for me, well, when I was when I was kind of in the uh, playground age, the Beatles. That was that was the go-to um, favorite band of me at that time. I'd say that. Right, so you started playing instruments in a very young age. How old were you when you started playing? I I started playing the drums when I was 11. And um, then I kind of, I branched out to uh, uh, the banjo. Mm -hmm. And I also started playing some blues harmonica before that. But I really became enamored with bluegrass music really heavily and so I wanted to be a banjo player uh, I love singing so much though too and I do both but I got to a point when I was about 18 19 that I realized I was never going to be one of the great banjo players or innovators on, on an instrument and so and that was about the time I started writing songs and so I started playing uh, more acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. rhythm guitar. I'm still not a lead guitar player. I just can't do it. But um, and I'm, I'm still. I think it's a it's a continuous learning process. Everything you know, playing and writing and singing. But uh, so rhythm is, is uh, kind of my to back myself up. But I do a a, a, a good bit of show solo, and I really enjoy that. Um, well and so uh, I love the interaction with other musicians in a, in a band situation but 
Um, that actually takes me to your college days, where you studied performing arts, theater. Yes. So did that help uh, shape up that persona on stage? Well, uh, you know, there was uh, maybe now or, or lately, but at that time, there was a kind of a disconnection between um, theater mm-hmm. and that would influence your writing by any um i don't know that's a good question i i don't know i know that just listening and and sometimes just being inspired by different uh personal experiences or interchanges or the news in general or or sometimes just flashes of inspiration of some idea um uh, that that's kind of the main thing that's been for my writing i think um one of the reasons why i asked if it influenced your writing or not because i don't know who it was but i think it was buddy miller part uh, was doing a clip from the king of broken hearts documentary and he said Jim sometimes would bring up this piece of writing be like how and when and why so I, I, I might be in that clip or it might be something completely different because my mind is kind of drifting away at this stage well I'm glad you brought up Buddy Miller he's, he's a, a dear friend and I think um, a huge musical force And um, so, and he's just such a, a, a wonderful man, just a, a, a great person. And um, so I'm just humbled at anything Buddy says and, uh, and just, just to know him. And so uh, um, whatever Buddy says, <laughs> It's I'll true. stand by. <laughs> right. I'm um, moving down to your career. You work with many, many incredible people, including Ralph Stanley. The album you did, you did two albums with him, if I'm correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one with his band, the Clinch Mountain Boys. Yes. And one with you and him alone. Well, actually, both records did have the Clinch Mountain Boys, but right. we did. We I, I did write a couple of songs for Ralph to sing 
um, a cappella, you know, without any accompaniment. He, he was so good at that, this, doing this uh, style of gospel music that he would yeah. do. And um, that, that was, uh, you know, things in my career, in my life, really, they're still kind of slowly happening in some ways, but I was in my 40s when I, I started working with Ralph, and um, uh, he, he had been such a big influence on me as a, a young man and teenager. And um, so we did two together, and then Buddy and I co-produced a record on Ralph. Um, All right. album was that? Um, that was called Man of Constant Sorrow. Oh, that was after uh, the Old Brother Where Art Though album really? Yes, oh. yes. This, this just came out a couple of years ago. And um, uh, it may have been his last album. I think it was, well, I think it was the last album that he had recorded. Um, he might have had some old stuff that he had previously recorded, yeah. but that was those were his last sessions, I believe. And, uh, so he, he just, he was an amazing singer. I know. Just totally unique. Amazing. I usually listen to his albums on a number of occasions. Like, I need some Ralph Stanley today. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you're aware of Ralph. And, and it sounds like you've really got a, a, a wide palette of musical listening. Thank you. Yeah. One day, if we meet, I will tell you about my obsession. Eventually, <laughs> one day. So, um, I've got a number of things. So, your very first album, commercial album, that you, uh, that was Planet of Love? Yes. All right. Uh, so, it was with Rodney Crowell and John Leventhal. Yes. And, and actually, before I get to that question, I, I had recorded a record. Um, with Pete Anderson. Gonna... It was got yes with Pete Anderson, but that didn't come out, and so that was really disappointing. But that that was my first released record, yes, the Planet of Love. I'm um, actually going back to the one you recorded with Pete Anderson and Ronald White. Um, it was supposed to be put out for CBS, right? Yes. Okay, and you mentioned it got lost. Yes, that would have come out in 1988. Did you manage to find the records, or? Oh. Now that record, that record, the, the CBS record, um, the one that Pete Anderson produced, mm -hmm. that one wasn't the one that was lost, but there was a record. I had come to Nashville in 1979, and there were two guys I wanted to hang out with, George Jones and mm -hmm. the mandolin player named Roland White, who's also a singer in Roland. Yes is the brother of the late Clarence White. Yeah. Clarence was this great guitar player. So towards the end of my five months in Nashville, before I ended up moving to New York, I, I couldn't get anything going in Nashville to sustain me. And um, we recorded this duet record, and that, I couldn't get a deal for it. I sent it out to the Bluegrass labels, and nobody was interested. So I got kind of discouraged and just set it aside, but I didn't have the master tapes 
of it. And then several years later, finally, when things were happening, I wanted to release it. And Roland and I didn't know what happened to the master tape. Mm-hmm. And then last summer, last August, Roland, I was playing a bluegrass gig in Nashville yeah. at a place called the Station Inn. Okay. And Roland was sitting in with me. I always want him to sit in with me when he's around. And, um, and as he was about to leave the stage, he said, oh, by the way, my wife found the no. tape in a box. And so um, now that London Southern is out here, and it'll be coming out of the States uh, in May or June, I will find some time to put it out, you know, when it is, uh, it's a real meaningful record for me, and it, it will be my 30th album. Oh so, my God! Uh, yeah. And Congratulations. So, uh, thank you. And, and so, uh, yeah, so I, I'm real, real happy he found that. Oh my, I'm so happy that you actually found it, because I've oh, been... Oh, I am too. It's, it was just a shock, a great, a great shock. I've been itching to ask, like, did you find it or not? But yes. I can imagine how good it is. I mean, yeah. okay, let's go back to Planet of Love. Uh, you worked with Rodney Crowell and John Leventhal. Yes. Tell me about their album a little bit more. I, I'm, okay. Well, I wrote, um, I wrote, I think, eight of the ten songs with John Leventhal and then um, two by myself. And it was Rodney, had, still is one of my heroes, and he certainly was back then. So to work, to, John and I had been writing a lot, and uh, so then to, to get to work with Rodney Crow was a real big thing for both of us. And um, uh, it, it was, I, they, everybody, they really felt like that record was going to be huge commercially, but unfortunately it wasn't. Um, I kind of got lost in the shuffle at the record label. And, but as a songwriter, eight of those 10 songs got recorded by other people. And George Strait, for mm-hmm. instance, recorded two songs that were in this movie called Pure Country. So as a songwriter, that allowed me to make a living through these years um, up until, well, it's been several years now, but for a, for a, a stretch of time, I, I, I could make a living just by writing songs, but I was still, my aspirations were to be a recording artist, so I keep making records and went through a period I had um, on to record late uh, right uh, with Robert Hunter yes we've written about a hundred songs together 
and he is also one of my heroes and uh, just an amazing writer and I think one of the most intelligent men on the planet. Um, he's, he, oh gosh, what a writer he is and human being. So, uh, that's people, yeah. that's, uh, put people in perspective. So you wrote six albums with Robert Hunter. Yes. Three albums were released in the same year and in a matter of months apart from another. Yes. Whoa. Yes, that, that year I put out four records. And um, I think, I think um, one thing for me, because I got, since my teenage years, I wanted to put out records, but it, it wasn't until my mid-30s mm -hmm. until that, that was able to happen. And so in some ways I felt like I needed to catch up with my peers that had started recording younger and uh so that might be one reason but i'm just kind of uh compelled to to write a lot and to making a record kind of also is my motivation a lot of times to write mm -hmm. and so that helps and i'm so sorry i hate to do this but i'm gonna have to to go i've got oh, to no. uh, catch catch the bus here in a minute we're going up to manchester for our last show for this uh, great tour uh uh called the transatlantic yes. uh, sessions and so uh it's just a wonderful group of people and uh, it's really been inspiring last night i finally in this little tour the writing started so i started about three songs oh wow okay yeah, but you are uh, have really been great to talk to. Thank you so much. No, thank you, honestly.